0: This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shi'urim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapyansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. This, I think, will work Sunday mornings. We had been explaining the last few times, speaking about the so-called thought processes that should lead a person to uh, belief in a creator. I'm going to repeat a little bit the structure because it's important to keep in mind the overarching structure so that we understand what is proving what and what is part of which argument. There is just so much talk that you tend to lose sight of which question is being answered at what point. Our overarching theme had been the different types of contemplation that a person can uh, develop in order to um, begin to come to the conviction that there must be a creator. We shied away from the word proof and we spoke about contemplations and evidence and reasonability, etc. We had um, gotten to our second point, which was the complexity of um, living beings in the world which require, obviously, someone to have designed it. The counter-argument had been evolution, uh, meaning that there is an explanation that can give it a natural explanation, and therefore this line of reasoning need not move a person towards a belief in God. We did not, and we will not now, discuss evolution vis-a-vis um, a timeline in the Torah, but rather in terms of does life have, in its all complexity, have an explanation that is, could be natural, could reasonably be natural or not. Um, Last time we spoke about three phases of evolution, inanimate to animate, animate to more complex animate, and um, the animal to man. We had made some points about Uh, the complexity of living things, the fact that we don't actually even know what a living thing is, what makes living things alive, and so on. Today, I want to discuss two other lines of reasoning, which, in their own, are not absolute proofs, because they do have rebuttals that take it away from the status of absolute proofs. I think it's very important, first of all, It's important to know about the topic if you are outside and you have to speak intelligently and discuss it. No arguments that have been used have been refuted refutations. I believe that that's an important part of it. Secondly, even if one refutes it, um, we're not looking for the absolute proof. We've shied away from it. But we are looking for powerful arguments that um, tend to buttress and make a reasonable person very, very confident that this is right. The first argument, and it's been around for a long time, is called the argument about entropy. Entropy is the second of the um, four three, three laws of thermodynamics. With a there's, a there's a fourth one that's called the zero, but, but it's, uh, th- those are the basic perceptions of energy that we have in the world. Um, they're more than th- 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 these laws are not like laws of gravity, which tend to be very specific laws. These laws of thermodynamics are principles that govern a very sweeping way uh, everything that we deal with in terms of energy. The first one is conservation of energy, and that is uh, a basis for everything that we have and do. The second one is is that with time, the entropy of any system will increase. The word entropy is loosely means organized, focused versus um, diffuse. So that um, the heat in any closed system will tend to diffuse itself. And the advantage of it is that when you heat up a house in one place, it'll become warm all over to some degree. The warm air will not stick to each other. It will travel and mix with the cool air until some equilibrium is reached, and all the areas have the same amount of warmth. Um, it is true in from the form of energy to form of energy. If you have a very, very focused type of energy, like you have a motor running, it will never lose the energy, but you can never recapture its energy, because it spent its energy moving something against friction, which created heat, and the energy of that heat is very diffuse. It cannot be harnessed to rerun that engine again and again, because or else you would have come up at the same chachma if the energy never gets lost. Well, just let's let the wheel, when you're driving a car, let the motor run the wheel, the wheel run the motor, and BS Gold said that you have a perpetual motion machine. The answer is the energy will radiate from a specifically focused place to diffuse heat, etc. It's a principle also that is applied in a very very broad way, in the sense that a um, energy will go from, anything organized will tend to become disorganized in time. If you leave your lawn alone for a year, it will not become nicer. Barukha Minusa, it's been tried and tested many times with many different excuses. And if you don't leave it, if you don't do anything to it, it will become worse over time. Um, and everything like that, um, the the, the um, famous parables always, your room, if, if there's no input into the room, it becomes messier. Never organize itself over time. And that's the general principle. And therefore, the argument has been put forth that explaining that the the world went from a Soup of different types of nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen molecules, and and with the, with time, organized itself into the human being. It is is the is the most contrary um, e- example to the law of entropy. That is um, the argument. The rebuttal to that goes as follows. It is true. Let's take the example of of your yard. It's true that if you leave the yard um, untouched for a year, you will come back and find a yard that is in much worse shape. But it's very possible um, that in one corner of the yard, a seed had landed from a squirrel and a little tree was sprouting. So the entire yard itself looks like a mess. There, 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 there's garbage all over the place, there are animal droppings, there is tall grass, there are dead shrubs, there's weeds. But in one place, an oak tree happened to start growing. It might be that some some animal came and munched up the grass, and it actually looks very very nice the lawn in one particular patch or something. Or of a million lawns, one of them the 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 um some natural element might have took down two or three dead trees, and the lawn is in and the, the yard is in better shape. So. Um, the, the way in which the counter-argument is presented is, entropy is not a law like the law of gravity, which is Chal on every particle, and is, to use the word that every single, there's no such thing as one out of a billion particles deciding not to go with gravity. It, it, we're not aware of those phenomena. But um, the law of entropy is a generalization. In other words, if we need to chart the direction of things, they will tend to be disorganized. The larger the system you're dealing with, the more chance there is that there's an exception. And and, it, and that exception is not at all contrary to it because it's a statistic. Just like if we say any statistical entity, if we say the general population will be... Um, The general population will have um, many, many people that are 5 foot 10, fewer people 6 foot 5, and so on, and fewer people 5 foot 5, et cetera, et cetera. um, So if we were to find the entire world all of a sudden to become 6 foot 6, we're going to say something crazy happened. But if we find one fellow in one place who is six foot nine, that, that exception does not go against the grain of the statistical probability. That's the nature of things. So the law of entropy is not an absolute type of law like negative um, you know negative and positive attraction and repulsion and, and electromagnetic scene or gravity, etc. It's simply a generalization. So if the universe... Contain or if the Earth itself contained zillions of atoms, so the vast majority of them did become nothing. They were nothing and became nothing, and the world was just a merry soup of different chemicals. In one spot, there happens to be the exception where the tree grew. Um, so, as an absolute, entropy cannot be used as an absolute um, as an absolute proof against it. The question is on the reasonable scale. You're telling me to believe that there's this ongoing process that, without any outside interference, has gone against the grain of nature. It is, and, and it's very easy to keep expanding the system and making zillions of worlds, but it seems contrived. I mean, it, it, we expect, for instance, when the water washes up sand, we expect some clumps that are completely nothing, some sand worn away, and occasionally a hole in the ground that is very useful and might serve as a little bit of a, um, you know, a hiding place for somebody. We might find a cave that's carved in a very different way. But we stop at that. We never say that given enough caves, one of them would look like the Taj Mahal. Um, It's just the whole picture of it uh, of of a, a cell is so organized, so extraordinarily organized, I've said before, that it counters our basic understanding for the world. So impossibility, no. But a person who is really, really, um, a, um who a person who's giving it a test of reasonableness would be very, very struck about this going against. The granometric, yes,
1: uh, <clears throat> I'm by no way an uh, expert or even somewhat knowledgeable in these matters, but could the, the the rebuttal be that evolution sort of presupposes that you had one small step up in complexity, where you had one, you know, one small, I don't know, right. DNA slash protein created, but inside of that was started a process that inherently leads to more complexity. So it's not that you had the Taj Mahal created through accident, it's that you had a small system, which was more developed than anything else, started that ultimately could lead to something like the Taj Mahal.
0: That that is a good point. The problem is um, that first step... In other words, once we have our first cell, and a cell is an organism that takes care of itself, yes, then we've solved the problem from becoming a cell to becoming a person would not be a violation of it. Just like if I have one person working someplace, he could create robots and he could harness animals and create enormous things. But DNA itself, one strand after another strand after another strand, is still not useful. The, the threshold of something which is capable of organizing itself is a long way, you know, to get to that first cell by accident, that first living being um is, is really, really against the grain of things, and even in the big picture, for that to survive um it, it, let's say you had that first cell, and, and look in the world as a whole, that first cell had so many ways to go to pot that um it goes against the flow of what we expect. It's the reason why when a person it's it, it, the, the concept of entropy, I think concept is a much better language for it is that's the reason why when I found something designed... I say, oh, um, something's going on. If somebody tells me a story and the details are too neat, I say to myself, contrived. Um, Typical, a lawyer that is cross-examining a witness and the witness is perfect, the lawyer knows he's lying because genuine people make mistakes, slip up, have lapses of memories and and contradict themselves. It is the hallmark of truth of, of of natural process. When somebody's witness testimony is letter perfect, it tends to send a red flag. So uh, my answer would be: I think the first step you can get to, uh, uh, that would be able to say from this point onwards, it's just a question of, and um, of of commas. In my mind, I think that that's a long step. Okay. There's a second argument, and this is called. Um, specificity uh, which goes as follows. I'll read to you something soon um, and uh, I will... But let me explain it first. It is, what are the chances? You know, when you sit down and you uh, by a fireplace and tell somebody the world had gonzillions worth of molecules colliding, somewhere along the line that there's a chance that one of them got together and it became a, a complex molecule, another one, another, another one, and that created life. When you tell it like that, that that's, that's a very, um, it's a reasonable story. If you try to take out a slide rule and make some, some statistics about what the chances are, then you um, start realizing that it's not true. Now it's an argument, it's a powerful argument. It does have a rebuttal. And again, I'm going to go through the argument and the rebuttal. because other thing is important to be well informed I, um, and so on. I'm going to read, I'll tell you the book I'm reading from this as opposed to the other books that I read is a book written with a certain angle. It's not a religious angle per se. It's a scientific religious, meaning the person himself is a scientist who believes that there is something called thought which must have formulated the world. Uh, it, it's it's God in a very diffuse sense. Uh, it's, it's again, it's a book that I happen to pick up by chance because that's how I usually pick up the books. And uh, Maybe you'll tell me the law of entropy will say that I pick up Bravich, but it's, it, the point is still a good point. The book is called The Philosophical Scientists. It is written by a fellow named David Foster. David Foster is somebody who received He's a scientific consultant. Received his technical training at King's College London, and he got am- a master's and Ph.D. Um, and he worked in cybernetics and uh, all sorts of things of that nature. <coughs> the um, the book is put out by Barnes and Noble, and he basically deals with what could account for creation. His point, half of the book, is um, trying to find a scientific uh, a, a scientific entity, uh, a sort of logos that is the mind that actually creates everything. It's Kind of not a god idea. I, I'm nothing that uh, it's not something that I was very enamored with. I, it's you know you, you feel free to read it, but I would like to read a point that he makes in the beginning. That I think is a very powerful bo- point. Okay, um, he, he his point was as follows that there was an argument be- when Darwin came out with, um, w- with his um, theory, somebody uh, came up to him and said, I think it was Wilberforce, and again, not clear from here, but basically his point was, you're saying that a monkey typing blindly at a typewriter could possibly have produced Shakespeare. So, um, to which there was a rebuttal. I th- it was, I think, Huxley. This is a quote from the Mysterious Universe by Sir James Jeans. I think it was, I think, Huxley who said that six monkeys set to strum unintelligently on typewriters for millions and millions of years would be bound in time to write all the books in his museum. Basically, Huxley said, listen just give me enough monkeys, this is before they invented computers, and I guess before animal rights were really enforced, and you could have the monkeys work 24-7, if you just give it enough time, meaning all, all books are, are simply statistics, I mean, they're just letters, there are 26 letters, and just, there's a finite amount of variations, at some point, you're going, by blind faith, going to have the entire 700,000 books of the British Museum typed out, um... Uh, and now he, uh, um, if we examine the last page which a particular monkey had typed and found um, that it had chanced in its blind strumming to type a Shakespeare sonnet, we should rightly regard the occurrence as a remarkable accident. But well, if we look through all the millions of pages of monkeys that turned off in untold millions of years, we might be sure of finding a Shakespeare sonnet somewhere amongst them the product of the blind play of chance. That was the point. Listen, you're right. It it definitely doesn't happen in one minute, but if time is flexible, it could have happened over a very long period of time. Um, This is the point that's made. It sounds quite uh, intriguing. And this is an argument that I've heard when I've spoken with people. Um, You know, everything you're telling me is true for today, tomorrow, or after. Give it the amount of time. Give it billions of years. Fifteen billion years, that's a long time. Okay, so he's going to deal with this um, point itself. And thesis. This is now this fellow, he, I believe it's this fellow here, um, Foster, who is giving the f- figures for this. Thesis. Six monkeys typing randomly for millions of years would type all the books in the British Museum. In 1860, so now he goes to the facts. 1860, there were 700,000 books in the Museum. Each book is 350 pages, 40 lines. There is X amount of type, um, and he is writing the, um, the the probability of typing all those books and so on. The um, the improbability is 10 to the 39th. That's 10 with 39 um, 10 with 39 zeros after it. A monkey, then how much a monkey could type, and he's willing to have 10 to the 10th years. It's still off by Huxley's monkeys typing 10 to the 10th years. Could type 1.6 times 10 to the 17th line against an improbability of 8.6 times 10 to the 39th. The shortfall would be a factor of 5.4 times 10 to the 22nd. Now, Huxley only nominates six monkeys. Let's give him a generous allowance of monkeys at something equal to the human population of 1860, which is 10th to the 9th. He still has a shortfall of a factor of 10 to the 14th. So, and this is the sum total of what he is coming up with statistically, allowing Huxley all the monkeys there have ever been, typing for all the time there has ever been, there would be a shortfall ratio of more than 100 million millions. And that only relates to the chance of typing one line of one book in the British Museum. How much could they have typed it? And then he comes back to a um, Huxley's six typing monkeys typing for the racial universe would type 36 letters of sense in one of the books in the British Museum. And and he said hardly all the books in the British Museum. And uh, the Huxley had it wrong, and inasmuch as Darwin relied on the same sort of improbability argument, that Darwin has it wrong too. But how wrong? By fact of millions of millions. And if one drew all the books in the calculation, it would be wrong by millions of millions of millions of millions. Of millions. Um, and so on. That is the point that he writes. Then he goes to show, and he has different different chapters about how specific, the specificity of hemoglobin protein is represented by the number 10 to the 650th. Now, with the DNA is a book, a very, very, very specific book. And to have that come about by accident is, runs in that same type of, and um, y- y- you know, if, if you do the math, how, what are the chances to get um, a DNA coding that will produce a cell with everything it needs, you would start running into these same issues. And uh, he works out some of the math. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not uh, good enough at the math uh, not um, learn enough, but that's his basic point. And meaning, the yes, by by just tossing in years and years and saying, given enough time, w- we have a calculation of what a scientist expects to be the amount of time, and the, the needed, the statistics for a specific code is extraordinary, and therefore, um, the time just not enough. We can't just say, give it enough time. Enough time doesn't do it. That is the argument. Um, now let uh, let me explain what a counter argument is and uh, where it leaves us. The counter argument goes as follows, and this is um, it's, it's kind of a little bit paradox, a little bit difficult to hop, but let's explain it in a minute. If I ask you if a person if a person wins a lottery ticket, Um, And he got this piece of paper that says, your chances of winning this lottery is one out of 170 million, which tends to be uh, like the normal number for winning some lottery. Um, That's usually what's printed on it. And a person won the lottery. He says to himself, it's a miracle, especially if everybody could use the extra cash. And so, uh, wow, it's a nace. It's a real nace. Now, almost every week, somebody wins the lottery. Not every week, every other week. I mean, people win the lottery a few times a year, at least. Are we witnessing Nisim on the magnitude of Kriyat uh, of five times a year? The answer is no. Let's and let's give an example to show to show you what, um, what how to understand that. I look out at my house. My house is a certain model. It has a plastic shed in the back, in the corner, and it has a dogwood tree 10 feet from the house and three pine trees 50 feet from the house. Now, how many, what are the chances for that happening? I'm not sure, I, 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 but let's assume it's, 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 a, it's a combination of a lot of chances. And um, you want to have a, um, a, a, a house of this model, this tree exactly here, this tree exactly there, there, chances would be the millions, I guess. I'm just throwing out a number. There, there are no... I, I have not seen any houses exactly the same. Or better said, there are in America today, let's say, 100 million houses. Just, just take a number at random. There are 250 million people. So what are the chances someday that I would live in 1106 North Belgrade? The answer is one out of 100 million. And I live there. Is, is that a miracle? The answer is... If there needed to be something specific about it, if somebody had told me when I was 13, given me a, a sealed envelope saying, "You are going to live in 1106 North Belgrade," there would be um, a clear miracle. That would be clearly something. If somebody wrote me a letter, "You're going to someday live in a, in a home that's a split foyer design with a plastic shed in the corner and three pine trees in the back and one dogwood next to, next to the house." um th- that would be th- the probability would tell me this man knows something that human beings couldn't possibly guess he could not have guessed it if somebody tells me a, a week ago these are the numbers that are going to win the lottery in 3 weeks that person is is has a power that cannot be explained statistically probably but any event that happens as random as it happens is a um is not in itself a proof of a miracle, because every event is random, every event is unique, and the chances against that specific event happening are great. Are, are great against it, so, but but in general, just to say that things are because they're unique and very rare that that's um, that that's statistically impossible is not an argument. Let's take it back to the point where it's a rebuttal. And um, to, to create DNA um, the way we have it is a statistically humongous chore. Um, sure. And and yes, if we needed to recreate the DNA strand the way we have it, it would... And he goes into, he says, the specificity of a hemoglobin uh, molecule is one um, uh, in with... 700 to 10 to the six fifty or something like that. He's right. That it, it, if you take hemoglobin and you fiddle around with one aspect of it, um, you lost it. It's not going to be able to, to transfer blood, et cetera. But who says that that's the only molecule that can do it? Um, you could have, maybe there could be 5,000 different substances that could serve as carriers for blood. Maybe um, the DNA could have been written in a very different way. It could have been written in a very different set of chemicals. Maybe any set of, of one of, the, of an infinite amount of chemicals could have written it. So it happens to be DNA, DNA is the carrier for that. It could have been something else. Um, it could have been many other languages. Many. That is a counter argument, which is a good argument. The problem is, and again, if, if you're asking me, does that statistically prove it? No. But the argument is still a very powerful. one. There is yet to be found a language other than DNA. Not even close. It's not like you found English and French and Spanish. There's nothing else in any way, anywhere, anytime that, 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 but DNA. Um, which means that it, it, if there would be so many billions and trillions of chemicals, why hasn't anything been found? Um, why hasn't anything developed like that? Why didn't one mechanism, one organism, develop a language that's more efficient than DNA? I mean, computing languages, you already have tons of languages competing because some languages are suited for different things. And that's fine. You have different languages because um, some are more efficient for these type programs, more efficient for other programs. Just like uh, under evolution, different forms of life developed different types of um, organisms to adapt, why didn't they develop different types of DNA mechanisms? The DNA has got its faults, I'm sure, and there's plenty of, it's got its issues, <coughs> and an animal with a better coding system might have done better. And yet, no such thing. And we don't, even science has no, <coughs> not even a have a of some other system to, to to do that. So, it is a strong argument and you might say it's not foolproof; it could be otherwise. But as as a point to ponder, it's very powerful. Yes, Memphis.
1: So is everything that DNA seems to be, the, at least as far as we know, the only sort of this language, so to speak, yes. that could reproduce itself and give all these instructions yes. to cell and lead to this process of evolution. Right. And that just means that since it's the only, it seemingly is the only one that could work. It's just a really, 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 you know, fat chance that it happened randomly.
0: Yes. In other words, you're telling me, for instance, it, it, let's go back to my house example. If somebody would come along and if I would have bought a different house and it would be without a, a, sh- a, a plastic shed in the back, I could have used it as well. I, there are people that live in houses without plastic. The are people that live in um, Bedfords and not in bedfords. There are people that live with poplar trees. and people that live without poplar trees. Fine. So, so, so then I'm saying it's just another variation, which, which the word, the chances that you would be, there is a meaningless concept. But there is no such, there is no other thing. And th- that's an, an, an amazing thing, yes.
1: So, basically, if I could just say this, so maybe I understand this, that really saying that, if we're talking about a random process here, and there were, no, there were a number of options for how this could have happened, then there would be DNA, and there'd be something else, because talking about independent evolution, then different types of organisms would have their own coding systems. Right. But since, if you want to talk about there's a random process, and it's only produced DNA, and that's it. Right. So that means that's the only, seemingly that's the only thing that could work the way it does. Yes. And therefore, the chances of that developing randomly is extremely, Yes. In, in other words, I,
0: I would suggest that the burden of proof rests on the evolutionist to show me some alternative systems, viable alternative systems, so that this is just one of a few. It's fascinating that the point that you mentioned, Pinchas, is actually, it's, it's used for evolution when I think it's a very powerful argument against it. The The argument goes... Almost all living things are the same. The DNA, the difference between us and a mouse on the DNA level is pitiful. Um, So the argument goes, if you had a God designing and creating, everything would have been a new fit. We're we're going to speak about that because we're we're going to try to understand um, that point from the religious angle. But from an evolutionary angle, I would have supposed... That just like they have these this riot of change externally, internally there would be different improvements on different systems, and um, which somehow either means that only DNA could possibly do it, or there's a reason, there's some sort of reason and rhyme why it is that um, this th- that that there is one system and all living things are off by a small tick. So the cockroach, the human being, the elephant. Um, and and, and and the bacteria are 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 laughably alike. And and it's one code, one language that, that makes the mousiness of the mouse and, and the humanness of the human. Um, if somehow it's thought of as a, a, a pro evolutionary argument, but I think strongly against it. So um so a person says to himself and then so his argument while having a flaw as bec- as as you can't say that it's a, sti- a statistical impossibility for life to have an unless you can prove that nothing else but DNA could make it happen. But the flip side is it's is a very powerful argument unless you can prove that there are other viable systems, at least one other system. We, we don't know of any. We don't have any. We don't even have a halamine of any. And um, there are some things, for instance, he mentions hemoglobin, which acts to carry oxygen, um, there are other things that they've tried to develop alternate bloods, quote-unquote, which means just for giving a infusion of, uh, to keep a patient alive, that might have other carriers for oxygen. It's a very specific duty and a very specific job, and um, you know, it could happen. But but DNA especially is extremely bothersome. You have another point? Okay, so so we have, so, so, so to recap the, the points, we have two very strong arguments is it, 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 um it's, it, on against that step of inanimate to animate, specifically that step. As Penrose pointed out correctly, once we have our very first cell, our first cell is an organizer. That's what it is. So 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 the 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 once I have a cell in place, how that cell became a, 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 an elephant is not going against the law of entropy. So so we have. Two more very strong, though not infallible, arguments against the possibility of a soup of molecules having developed into um, structured, into into structured, organized, purposeful life the way we understand it. The first one is a general sense of entropy, in which is our basic grasp of reality, that without purposeful organizations. Things by quote unquote itself go or awry rather than purposeful. Let's give an example which we'll be using later on the inevolution uh, within animals. When when animals and plants tend to be left on their own, they they breed and but usually produce so so offspring. Not terribly great. Occasionally you get a type that's harder or better. When people breed them purposely, cultivate um, plants and breed animals, they they do uh, they produce species that are by far better. The wild types very, very, very rarely have any milas whatsoever over the types that are specifically bred and so on. So entropy globally governs things that as things are left on their own, they will become less organized and, and uh, 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 less complex in a sense, less organized. And life is aligned so contrary to it that it really begs the question. And even though it's not impossible, but we ask ourselves, is that the way we ought to think about it? And that's why the, 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 the intuitive basis for our saying everything designed has a designer is because entropy does its reality. Um, as Soma Mello said, I went by the field of a lazy man and it had completely fallen into disarray. That's another, it's a practical way of setting the law of entropy. The second issue was the statistical impossibility. And when you're sitting without a slide rule um, or computer today, the, the slide rules have gone the way dinosaurs. Um, the, the, when you sit today without a computer, you say, "Well, if just given enough enough time, things happen." Well, it, let's be a little more specific. Time has a measurement. You can only give it by by the most generous uh, measures, 15 billion years or whatever it is. That's fine. So now take it and um, now take it and figure out how many seconds there are. How many chemicals were in the world? It, 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 it is not, it, it, when you're talking with somebody, the word gazillion comes to mind. But a scientist can tell you exactly how many molecules there are in the world. I mean, there's it, it, it a good, you can make a good estimate by we know the volume of the world. We, we have an idea of the density. We have an idea of, I'm going to tell you, we can make a, 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 um, a guess, a reasonable guess, and, and, and figure out how many reactions are taking place. And the question is, the, the arrangement needed to make DNA as an intelligent DNA as a code that carries information is incredibly complex. And um, one of the very famous, uh, Chachmas, you know, one of the very famous illustrations used to initiate the layperson to statistics and probabilities is the famous, and in general, the, the idea of exponential growth is the famous parable with the king and the visor. Um, there was a king who had a visor who did him some great favor, and he asked him, what reward would you like? And the visor was kind of very, very, uh, quote-unquote, humble, and he said, N- nothing, your majesty. All I would like is take out a chessboard. On the first one, put one grain of wheat. On the second one, two grains of wheat. On the third one, three grains of whe- uh, 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 four grains of wheat and next one, eight grains of wheat, and that's it, when you get the on the that's the wheat I want. Um, yeah, so to us, we'd ask us how much did he get, and we'd, we'd, we would toss off a bushel, or we'd be generous, and uh, we would say, oh, uh, you know, a bunch of bushels, probably. Uh, if you do the math, you don't, there's not enough wheat in the world to fill the visor's appetite, um, b- because we're not used to working with exponential growth, um, unless you lend money for the mafia, you, you don't have that mentality of what it means, something that is, 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 is grows exponentially. And the complexity of, of, a, of, of the DNA, is, it's a code that dictates life. We didn't even know how it dictates life. We had our issues last time. But what it does do is a very specific code. And whenever there's a break in the chain, something terrible happens. A kid that's born with a, with a, with a, with a faulty gene someplace, and it, it, they're usually missing a segment somewhere, is, is, God forbid, a terribly crippled child. Um, usually, usually it's a, it's a significant. Um to get that specific DNA is a number that statistically is off anything we ha- possibly have. The the it's not infallible argument, like all arguments. Um, it it's it's based on a premise that DNA and the code that we have would be the only way the only way to pr- to have life. And um, somebody once ran, for instance, blood. Is blood the only a fluid that could give us life—could could it be done with another fluid? And um, you know, it, 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 I mean, we don't have any way of trying it. But blood has certain characteristics. We could have we could think of other fluids and so on. And so, therefore, it's not a foolproof argument. The other side—the other side is we don't have any model of an alternative. Nothing else has turned up. And the burden of um, of proof lies. On the other side to show that this is only one of many alternatives and it doesn't have to be specific. Those are the two points we've made today.
1: Okay.